2: Wastewater isn't usually a topic we tend to discuss in the open. But wastewater testing for COVID-19 did get you talking. From the discussion, it's clear that there's a strong belief in the technique, and also a potential for expansion. But your questions revealed some other issues that need to be addressed. And that's why I'm joined again by Tyson Graeber. He is a research associate at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario Research Institute, he has been working on wastewater testing almost since the pandemic began, and his work has given us much to think about when it comes to defeating COVID-19. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and this is the Super Awesome Science Show SAS Class on COVID-19 and Wastewater. Last week, Tyson Graber took us quite literally into the sewers with his research on wastewater testing for SARS-CoV-2. His words were fascinating, and also prompted several excellent questions on the technique and its future. There was one question that I received more than a few times, and that revealed your concerns not just with the virus, but everything else that happens to be in wastewater. But before we get to that answer, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, I suggest that you go back and do so now. The discussion was rather intriguing and revealed once and for all that SARS-CoV-2 can quite literally be anywhere. Class is now in session. Here's your first and most popular question. Wastewater is dangerous. How are you able to keep workers safe?
1: That's a really, really good question. And, 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 And when we started this back in March, that was still very much an open question. People weren't sure whether infectious virus, uh, infectious SARS-CoV-2, whether that was was active or infectious in wastewater. If this is a full genome of that virus and it somehow gets into your cell, uh, then that could replicate in your cells. These were all open questions at the beginning of this pandemic. A, a lot of groups have tried to isolate infectious virus from wastewater, from rivers, from COVID-19 patient stool samples. And, uh, nobody's been able to do it. So absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And so there isn't a lot of evidence, uh, right now, negative evidence showing that, um, there, there is no infectious virus in wastewater whatsoever. We don't know this, but nobody has been able to clearly show that stool samples have infectious virus. So actually what we're detecting in the wastewater and in stool samples from people is the RNA. That does not mean that it's infectious virus it's pieces of this RNA from the virus Um, so that's a very important point to tell you that uh, the risk is extremely low um, to be able to get infectious virus infectious SARS-CoV-2 virus from wastewater and um, um, in fact uh, uh, there's other things in wastewater that are a lot more dangerous Um, hepatitis being one of them. So, um, so there's other pathogens in wastewater that we should be worried about, uh, not SARS-CoV-2.
2: That is actually quite interesting that there is no infectivity that's coming from these particular viruses shed into the wastewater. It would be so interesting to do a study on that. But that's for another time. Uh, we'll move on to the next question. Uh, this one actually was quite fascinating because I used to be a lifeguard and we used to do these chlorine tests. So we would just go down to the water, would test how much chlorine there is. Do you think that we're heading in that direction that we could actually do a point of collection test for the identification of any kind of virus, COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 or otherwise?
1: So this is actually happening in Australia. Wastewater treatment plant workers just dip into the water and then do a, a test on site in the field. And it's a yes or no test. Um, so that might be something in the future that that we can look at. I know that companies are getting into this now, um, these kind of yes or no tests, um, the, the problem is is sensitivity. So you can imagine if once this is over and there's not a lot of SARS-CoV virus floating around in the environment in, in, in wastewater, sensitivity is an issue. And so you actually have to concentrate that water somehow. You have to take a lot of water, wastewater and then concentrate it to make sure that your, your sensitivity is high enough. Right now, the estimates of sensitivity, I believe, are roughly one case in 10,000 being detected with the with the tests that we're currently using. And, and that test is, is quite a bit more sensitive than what you would normally get from a, a field test at this moment. But in the future, it's certainly possible.
2: Well, what about a sample that is more concentrated, like an airplane or, or a train? Do you think that we might be able to use that kind of test remotely in these environments so we can actually determine whether a conveyance of any kind happens to be safe?
1: Certainly possible. And again, I'll I'll give Australia as the example. Uh, So they were, I I believe it was a pilot project where they were testing the cisterns from planes, from international flights coming to Australia. They would collect the wastewater from those uh, cisterns and and test them. You know, on cruise ships also, um, this is being done. I believe, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe the military, especially in the US, is interested in testing their their naval warships for SARS-CoV-2. So, so all, of these, all of these things are possible and, in fact, are, are being done right now.
2: So we've got the concentrated in the conveyances. We've got the wastewater. What about the watershed, just in general? Do you think that we could go off to ponds, like maybe a storm drain pond or something along those lines, and be able to find this virus so that we get a feel as to the overall prevalence of the virus in the community, not necessarily the that which is infecting individuals?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, I know of um, some projects that are starting in the watershed, in rivers and lakes and uh, beach areas, things like this. There shouldn't be any infectious virus from our own perspective, looking at treated water, so either chlorinated or UV treated water coming out of treatment plants here in Ottawa and and its its kind of neighboring city city across the way in Gatineau, we we didn't see any RNA signal even. So the, the treated effluent is is probably sterile in the in the sense of, of SARS CoV two, but but it's certainly in other areas where uh, wastewater is perhaps not treated um, as well, um, it, it could certainly end up, perhaps not as as infectious virus, um, but. But fragments of that virus could certainly end up in in, in lakes and rivers, and um, it would be interesting to look at uh, what the prevalence is.
2: So last week we talked about privacy when it came to wastewater testing, and we have a similar question that takes a little bit of different route away from ethics and more into equity. We do have social inequities, and they have been amplified due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Do you feel that wastewater testing and sentinel testing in general could possibly help us reduce these inequities and make sure that everybody has a chance to be safe with an early warning or sentinel system.
1: That's a really interesting angle on this. So this passive testing through wastewater I think is more equitable for the simple fact that any kind of active testing is is by its nature not equitable because it's it's somehow biased so there's less biased in this in in passive wastewater testing for sure Um, there still are biases of course but but um compared to clinical testing where um at least in the case of sars-cov-2 you have to go to essentially at least this is the way it is in canada right now and especially in ottawa you have to go to a central testing facility you have to take time off work you probably have to travel by bus or train or car if you don't have that time if you don't have that money to do that, and, and certainly if you're one of the frontline workers, you can't simply tell your boss that I'm gonna take off work to go get tested. And, and that that kind of active testing is by its nature inequitable. The wastewater testing is is passive and, and by its nature more equitable than than a clinical testing. It's anonymous, it's passive, you don't have to think about it. That information is collected and it's 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 used. And uh, so I think that's that's the a really powerful point of of wastewater testing is that it's it's by its nature it's equitable.
2: And finally, the idea of wastewater testing as a tool that can be used to be able to help deal with any kind of outbreak, whether it be COVID nineteen or some other virus, is interesting. However it is not solely responsible for the development of a policy. It really comes down to a multi-armed or even triangulation, if you will, so that it's one more piece of the puzzle, but that you have to always consider other aspects. While wastewater gives us one particular piece of information, it doesn't necessarily give us all the information. And so I'm wondering, in that idea of triangulation, where do you think wastewater testing should fit in when it comes to lockdowns or shutting down of a school or closing nursing home doors to visitors?
1: Yeah, another excellent question. I don't think we have all of the uh, the data or the opinions yet to to come up with, with a clear answer. And so public health units are, are really wrestling with what to do with that wastewater data right now. Um, but what we're learning and what I'm learning is that this is not enough now. And, and we have to um, be able to uh, not only interpret, but give them our opinions and 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 the more opinions, the better, I'd say, to be able to help them decide how much uh, of this information or how they should weight this information against other measures. And so right now, that that wastewater measure is an independent measure of prevalence, COVID-19 prevalence in the community. I think that through our group and and through others across Canada and around the world, we've clearly shown that there is power in this test. And um, the question is, how much should we weight this measure versus other measures? And right now, those other measures are essentially clinical testing measures. And also down the road, uh, a lagging indicator is hospitalizations. I don't think we have a clear answer yet. So right now, uh, public health units, uh, generally in Canada, the few that do have that uh, wastewater data information, it's kind of lower down on the priority list. So clinical cases are still the gold standard right now. If cases are going up, um, that's going to figure in your decision-making process. If wastewater is correlating with that, that's great, Um, that just makes me feel more comfortable, but really the weighting is not that high priority. But in Ottawa, I think wastewater is a little bit more important in the decision-making process.
2: Throughout the course of this season's journey, we've received many questions outside of the topics we've chosen. One of them happens to be due to a rather troubling statistic in Canada. Over 100,000 people in this country suffer from multiple sclerosis. I've heard from a number of you regarding the combination of COVID-19 and MS, and I wanted to provide you all with some information regarding what happens during infection, as well as vaccination. I've reached out to Farah Mateen at Harvard Medical School. She is an Associate Professor of Neurology and her clinical practice focuses on helping and treating MS patients. She also is originally from Saskatchewan, so she knows and appreciates what's happening in Canada. She has gained significant insight into what COVID-19 has done to the MS community. And I'm happy she has joined us to share her experience. What do we know about COVID-19 infection in those with multiple sclerosis?
0: So we're starting to know quite a bit. The story is nuanced, as you might expect. So there's a couple things to unpack here. One is the risk of getting COVID. And the other is, how do you do if you were to get COVID? So in general, people with MS have similar risk to the general population to get COVID. There are a few exceptions. For example, people on really highly immunosuppressive drugs But the majority of folks have a similar risk of getting COVID-19 as uh, the general population. And we're still um, learning and uh, we still want everyone to be cautious, both with and without MS, of course. And in terms of prognosis, um, that's also very dependent on which medication you're taking. And uh, many people might be surprised to know that there are more than 25 approved drugs for MS now. So um, there's a variety of treatments available. The more immunosuppressive your drug, the more serious the situation can be. So that's where the nuance comes in. But in general, uh, you a know, year into the pandemic, I think we also can take a little bit of a pause and say things aren't quite as bad as we might have thought a year ago.
2: Is there any difference in terms of symptoms or outcomes between relapse remitting and progressive multiple sclerosis?
0: In general, uh, COVID-19 has uh, many different presentations. Relapsing, remitting, and progressive MS are different types of MS. They tend to be different depending on how long you've had the disease. But in general, COVID-19 symptoms are COVID-19 symptoms. So the the folks that we've had with MS who've also had COVID-19, they have the same symptoms as other folks.
2: Many of the patients who have reached out to me uh, asking about COVID-19 and MS have wondered about the impact on healthcare. We have heard about closures. We've heard about surgeries being delayed. Your research has looked into this and I'm wondering if you can share with us what it looks like from the healthcare perspective and and how that may be altered as a result of this pandemic.
0: Yeah, and there that's a really good question and um One thing I can add here is that we want to keep in touch with our patients as a neurologist, I want to keep seeing my patients throughout the pandemic. And uh, a lot of our care has been through telemedicine or what we call virtual visits at my hospital. Most of the time that's like doing a, a video visit. So I may not be able to see everyone in person, but I can see them sort of via the computer screen or via a smartphone or something like that. We had started a clinical trial for people with MS uh, in terms of uh, their disease modifying therapy or their pills in this case and how they were uh, working for people with MS. And we'd started that in uh, the end of 2019, basically. And we were going to keep going for about a year. And then once it came to February, March, we had to basically look at our data and say, nobody wanted to enroll in our trial because everybody wanted to be at home and they were scared to come into the hospital. And at that point, we decided instead of doing a clinical trial, where everyone came into the hospital. We do what we call a virtual clinical trial. And we enrolled everybody from the comfort and safety of their homes. And so um, what was exciting to me is we did um, not just clinical care, but also research in in a totally virtual way, where we mailed people the materials. They did all their testing via uh, televisits. And we also collected data remotely through electronic pill bottles that sent in Bluetooth-based messages to people's um, smartphones. And then the data got collected by a central, um, uh, central computer. And so I think one of the cool things for me too, also doing MS research is that we got to do a virtual clinical trial, which hasn't been uh, done very much in MS. So I think we're continuing to like innovate on multiple fronts one thing that we noticed is people with MS sometimes were worried and they may have um, either self discontinued so they may have stopped their medicine or they may have avoided coming in or they may have changed the the timing of their medicine and I would just really encourage people to not change the dosing yourself uh, if you have MS and are taking a drug but to talk to your neurologist or one of your physicians and get the most up-to-date advice. A lot of researchers and uh, doctors have come together to understand the situation over the course of many countries and now over the course of a year. We have information that can be helpful for each individual. If you have a good communication line to your neurologist, um, that's really important because some of the things that people may be worried about may not actually be something you need to be worried about. And similarly, there may be some piece of advice that you weren't thinking of that could be useful to you.
2: Do you feel that it is best to talk with your neurologist about any possible treatments that you might be considering? Or are there any out there that don't necessarily need any kind of healthcare advice?
0: My thought here would be that it's better to just be open and uh, discuss what you're taking and what you want to want to try or what you've already tried for that matter with your neurologist, because um, even some of the vitamins or supplements out there, they may change the test results on one of your lab tests. And it may lead to, for example, a false reading or some supplements that are taken in excess may actually cause symptoms. So I think in general, it's good to sort of fully disclose and just have a conversation most of the time, you know, a lot of the things that people want to try and take are totally fine. And, and sometimes we just have what we call equipoise, we don't know if it's helpful or not. And then that's up to each person. Do they want to kind of give it a whirl and take it nonetheless? Or do they say, well, you know, we don't have enough data. So let's not take that. So people can make their own informed choices that way. I think that's the best approach. In my practice, um, people have tried all sorts of things. And I think it's just going in with the right frame of mind. And then also, I think uh, one issue is how much money it costs people. So If something may or may not work, you know, maybe you're willing to take it if it's not so expensive. But the worst case scenario, somebody spends a lot of their personal money on a treatment that doesn't work. And um, then they kind of not only are not getting any benefit, but they've um, economically uh, not made a good decision either. So we try to avoid those scenarios so that people don't ultimately get hurt.
2: Now let's move to something that has been approved, vaccines. I've heard from several MS patients who are concerned about vaccines and what they may do to them. Now, we are still early on, and I totally understand that, but do you have any data to provide us with perspective on how vaccination can progress in someone who has multiple sclerosis?
0: Yeah, so uh, vaccines are um, for COVID, you know, in some ways have been a major scientific development. And it's really remarkable how fast uh, the vaccines have been developed. Uh, I got my vaccine several months ago and, uh, you know, I got two doses and I have some personal experience that I can share with patients as as they go through that, that question. But I think uh, I w- whenever we talk about vaccines in my clinic, we separate it out. We talk about safety which I think a lot of people wanna know about. And we talk about what we call efficacy or effectiveness, how good does the vaccine work in them? And then the last issue is really like tolerability. And um, you know how does it feel to take the vaccine? So maybe just taking them one by one. Safety, uh, the vaccines, um, particularly the ones that we have approved, these are safe vaccines. So the government and all the public health agencies are very carefully monitoring the situation. In MS, these are safe vaccines, so I've encouraged all my patients to get the vaccine as soon as they're eligible and to sign up, and a lot of my patients have already received the vaccine, have done well, and carried on with their normal day. And The other question is around efficacy or effectiveness, and how good does the vaccine work? Uh, We think in most people, the vaccine will work just as well in someone with MS as someone without MS. Uh, Again, there are a few medications out there that are more immunosuppressive that work in a certain way on the immune system. For example, what we call the B-cell therapies. That's a typical um, type of MS treatment that somebody may be on. And in those cases, we have some question marks. So it probably works, but not as good. So we just kind of ask people to keep their eyes peeled uh, because we're going to learn more over time. And then tolerability. I think most people with MS have had the same tolerability. So they've had the same kind of vaccine experience as uh, people without MS. Uh, In general, um, you know, some people have some symptoms after the vaccine. They tend to be transitory. They tend to be mild. And they seem to be similar between people with and without MS. And, um, you know, you know, several, many million people now have been vaccinated with the uh, COVID-19 vaccines. And so we can say that with a pretty good confidence at this point.
2: I do have one question from a listener that was specific to not the vaccine itself, but the potential for relapse after vaccination. And she had told me that she had heard this happens after the flu vaccine. So I'm wondering if you can offer any information on this, whether it be uh, from the COVID vaccine or even the flu vaccine or any other vaccine for that matter.
0: Yeah, and that's a good question. We do get that question um, relatively often. I think that I understand where that's coming from. You know, you seems like you're doing something to your body. Would, wouldn't that trigger something? The reality is no, that... Um, Far and away, there's really no increased risk of a relapse after a vaccine. That's just really not the case. That's you know, the flu vaccine changes every year, because the what causes the flu changes every year. But um, that's not really a thing, you know. So it's not the case that if you get a vaccine, you're gonna have a relapse. I know I know where the question comes from and I understand how intuitively that people would be worried about it, but it's not not the reality. Um you know people with MS are at risk of relapses so I think that it's always good to be cautious but I follow about 200 people with MS in my clinic and I'd say about half or more have been vaccinated now and kept in touch with me about it in the last few months and not a single one has had a relapse after the vaccine so I think that's partly cuz we have good medicines and the vaccines are not Causing relapses.
2: You have mentioned that virtual sessions have been ongoing due to the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm wondering, do you feel that those and perhaps other changes that have occurred as a result of the pandemic might be implemented in the long term to improve health care for MS patients?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, Jason. So I think some people have mentioned that COVID-19, as terrible as it is and has been, has also transformed the way we do things. So one of the major noticeable transformations is how we interact with each other and how healthcare has been delivered in the last years. So in my practice, we used to offer televisits, but if you would rewind to, let's say, 2019, maybe only like 2% of my visits with my patients were via televisits. And I can tell you in 2020, uh, the majority of my visits were televisits. I, I want to say maybe 80%. And then in 2021, we're starting to move maybe like 50-50 now. And it depends on the nature of things. But I think that the world has changed. And um, in some ways, the world has changed in a way that it was going to change anyway, it just happened faster. And I found that a lot of my patients prefer televisits. They don't like to come in and park and deal with the hoopla of coming into the practice. And sometimes we can accomplish exactly the same thing while they're at home. And I would say I even learn a little bit more about my patients when they're at home and we get to see a little bit more about how they how they live in their environments, and um we get to meet some of the family we wouldn't have otherwise met and there's also some positives about virtual visits that are really really good, and I think it would be lost not to say that there's some cost savings with telemedicine too, where people don't have to pay for the the transit and some of the other expenses or they don't have to miss as much work or their caregiver doesn't have to miss as much work so i think this is really interesting to watch the field evolve and we're kind of right in the middle of it sometimes we don't notice things changing so quickly if i had to pull up my crystal ball i'd say a lot of people are going to continue to use televisits because they're very efficient and they're effective when we started our trial we thought we could only enroll people within about 100 kilometers and then when we started doing mail outs and virtual, we actually could enroll hundreds or, you know, even further away, hundreds of kilometers or further away uh, to be in the trial. So suddenly we had the country opened up and we could enroll people from anywhere. And when we did our COVID MS surveys of patients, what was originally uh, going to be just based on our practice, we were able to open up to anyone in the world. And we had people from, I think, about 20 different countries outside of North America answer to so I think it's really exciting uh, that you can use the same technologies and reach a whole world of people all at the same time. And I think you know, global trials is really gonna be the future.
2: And there you have it. I wanna thank everyone who asked a question and hope you have gained some further insight into both the benefit of wastewater testing and the impact of COVID-19 on multiple sclerosis. If you didn't hear your question, make sure to let me know by tweeting me at JATetro or sending me an email at thegermguide at gmail.com. You can also head over to speakpipe.com slash sass, that's s-a-s-s, and leave me a voice message. Next week, we're going to talk about variants, you've no doubt heard about them, and how they pose a significant risk to our ability to put an end to this pandemic. Now we're going to get into the science of it with someone you've heard before on the show. You definitely do not want to miss it. And that's why it's best to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're proudly part of the CuriousCast family and are available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to Tyson Graber and Farah Mateen. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Dela Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Greg Schott. Have a great week. Stay safe. And as always, make sure to show them some sass.